Hi, and welcome to the Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast. Every week, we will talk to the great, the good, and the legendary from the worlds of food, drink, marketing, and business to help give you the advice that will really help your brand boom. A huge thanks to our headline sponsors, the award-winning Engage Interactive. Engage Interactive have been helping hospitality businesses like yours prepare for a mobile and digital first world since 2007. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. So today we're beaming live from just outside Manchester to have a brilliant chat with a man who has built a brand that he'll admit himself is mostly smoke and mirrors. What we're actually finding out through this chat is that Simon Potts of Alchemist has built an incredible brand from the ground up where he's repositioned something to stand for something great. And it's so exciting to talk to someone who has done the proper work and delivered it through every touch point. Those of us that know The Alchemist know that it's a creative cocktail bar and restaurant that's still creating waves every single day, week, month and year and leaving a lot of its competition behind. If you think about cocktails and bars that are synonymous with it in the industry that we all love, The Alchemist comes really far near the top of mind when everyone's thinking about this. They're thinking about theatre, they're thinking about extravagance, they're thinking about smoke and dry ice, they're thinking about flaring and all these amazing delicious flavours that they deliver in a really well-serviced environment. Hope you enjoyed the chat. I really did. It was great to catch up with Simon and I'm wishing him well for the future. So it gives me the most dry ice grammable pleasure ever to introduce uh, someone that I haven't spent as much time as I would like with actually. So we need to put that to rights in a little while. But it is Mr. Simon Potts of The Alchemist. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Yeah, we definitely do need to put that right when the um the lockdown lifts and get together and have a uh, a martini or two. That that would be ace. It'd be really cool to properly catch up. And where where are you in the world today? Uh, my my home is in uh, Didsbury, just um just south of Manchester. So uh, we're we're still fundamentally based up here. Um, you know, fairly big geographical spread these days with the, the business and um you know big big chunk of the estate in London. So a lot of time ordinarily spent in in the city down there, but um. Today, yeah, I am I am firmly at home and um, enjoying a bit of sunshine, which is not something you can always say in, in Manchester. Oh, no, that's true. So going back then, you know, what about hospitality? How did you get into it? You know, was it a later in life thing or was it, you know, from when you were a kid or, you know, what sort of happened there? Yeah, it was almost exactly at the at the midway point, actually, if, if we get as far as um, uh, August, September this year, this summer, as, as I hope we will, um, then it will be 20 years since I started in hospitality. It's basically, um, as I went into my second year at university, um, I moved in with a couple of pals, as you do, and um, one of them was a chef. He, he got a job at a restaurant around the corner. And, uh, and when I got back to, to Lancaster, where we were at uni, he said, um, you know, they're, they're looking for a couple of bartenders and, and uh, part-time guys to join the team, you know, fairly sort of cyclical re- recruitment arrangements, as you can imagine, in a university town like that. So I turned up with him and, and uh, the guy said, you know, what have you got by way of experience? I said, 
nothing really. Um, I'd, I'd never, um, I hadn't even really spent lots of time in pubs or, or restaurants really at that stage. As, as you just, you know, you, you know your kind of market town that you grow up in, and you're you're familiar with four or five pubs around there we've done a bit of big city drinking in in oxford which was my local city um that that was sort of places like yates's wine lodge um mm-hmm. so you know nothing particularly um uh, exciting or groundbreaking um but i'd obviously got a, a bit of a sense across of being a, a reasonably nice guy and they, they took a bit of a punt and um yeah like i said it wasn't it wasn't anything too polished it was a proper sort of one-man band um tex-mex restaurant emphasis very much on uh, quantity over quality but um it was it was run by a really sort of um, uh, innovative, actually, and, and, and tr- entrepreneurially spirited uh, chap. When I look back, he was um, he was quite keen to have this this kind of blended restaurant and, and bar environment. Um, he he was very early on with the internet. We had these you know pound in a slot dial up computers in the bar um, almost as soon as that became uh, available to do commercially. Um, he was quite on with sort of live music and, and live live. Um, poetry readings and just just things that would get people through the door that cut through the noise a little bit of um everything else that was going on in the city at the time so i worked for him and um, part-time as, as a bartender really so i was i was shaking cocktails i mean tequila sunrises and sex on the beach it, it was in those days nothing too uh, too fanciful but um yeah that's, that's where i got started i got to the end of a couple of years um i finished my degree and, and he said to me there's a front of house job going here it's, it's 10 grand a year um but there's a flat upstairs that goes with it so Jumped in um, feet first, um, and he, he took me through the, the kind of basic principles of, of managing a business, stock ordering, rotor management. And I got to the end of twelve months with him, and he said, "If you're serious about what you're doing here, you need to go and work with um, with one of the big boys. Go and have a look at what people are doing in, in London. Um, you know, get get some real um, experience under your belt." So I packed up and uh, I went to work for Mitchells and Butlers, actually. And, um, and all bar one specifically, um, you know, great, great brand that's been um, going a long time doing doing their thing very well. So that was really good sort of early insight into, you know, brand identity, uh, working as part of a, of a much wider system. Um, so it was good. I worked in, in um, a site in Cannon Street um, initially. So um, completely, you know, different experience of hospitality there, you know, standing by your beds at five to 12. And then all of a sudden you'd have 200 people in in about half an hour and then an hour and a half later, they'd all be gone. <laughs> you'd you'd yeah. wait for the evening rush to come in. And then it got to sort of eight o'clock on Friday night and everyone was disappearing out. And then it just shot at the weekend. It was it was totally alien to, to hospitality in, in the north. And, you know, that that, that sort of um, different kind of rhythm and, and uh, the, the way that you could do food and drink for people in a much more sort of truncated fashion was was just very eye-opening. And then um, was was missing a bit the uh, the pull of the north, you know, the, the, the kind of big city life that you could get in uh, – in cities like Manchester and, and Leeds. And um, at the time, uh, Tim Bacon, obviously of Little uh, Ventures fame, was, um, was was very much at the kind of top of his game and in every kind of publication going. He was um, a bit of a pin-up for the sector and had created some some pretty cool brands in, in the living room and in Prohibition. So I put a speculative um, CV in on, on the, um, the Living Ventures website and got, got a call and was, was back up working with them in, um, in quite a quick turnaround. I went through a kind of training program with them. I ended up staying on in, in Leeds, which was just one of the one of the bigger ones, one of the more all singing, all dancing, four different floors, you know, nightclub and um, late bars and piano bars and a restaurant with queues around the block, you know, height of that kind of 2004, everything sort of, you know, all singing, all dancing and loads of money being spent. It was just a real kind of, yeah, life-affirming moment for me, really. And that's, that's kind of how I got started with the Living Ventures, guys. So where... 
Uh, well, going back, actually, it's really funny that you talk about Cannon Street, right? That was the first place I stayed when I first came down to London. Okay. But like you say, if you've ever, I mean, back then anyway, when you went to the city at the weekend, oh my God, you went out a walk. It was it was like lockdown. You know, there was like, it was like 28 days later or, you know, I yeah. think there was a Witherspoons that was open and maybe oh, right. that yeah. and there was one other thing and, and that was your options, you know. So when I was, you know, when I was young and, you know, wanting to go out and all that stuff and if you were the city side, it was a real damp squib, yeah. you know. It's fascinating. I mean, we, we've got a venue now that um, uh, is just off Liverpool Street behind the Gherkin and um, it's been going um, a bit over five years now and, and initially we, we, we'd expected it to trade that Monday to Friday, maybe a little bit of cherry on the top stuff on, on a Saturday. And we've, we've kind of pushed along with it um, one way or another and, and, and developed it out and, and ridden a bit of a wave, I think, of, of change that's, that's happening around the, um, the city more generally. I mean, that, that part of... Um, of the city is a bit of an extension anyway. You've got a lot of people rolling into Liverpool Street from Kent in the southeast who are looking for, you know, for a lot of weekend action. And we, we've built up really kind of credible trade now on Saturday and, and Sunday. In fact, it, it trades pretty much in line with everything else. I think the, the, the big change in, in the square mile proper was the um, the advent of the NED. It just brought, brought everything yeah. to, you know, very sharp focus there. And I know that there are, you know, plenty of restaurants and bars who are still trading a, a fairly kind of, normal five-day week up there but um lots of people are, are benefiting from you know a couple of hotels opening obviously bloomberg's come along in that time as well and it's um yeah it's, it's not quite as, as you know sort of heaving as west end obviously or um you know some of those more established spots but you can see it, it, it coming in, in the fullness of time and um it's good it, it just it just shows that if you're building sort of good credible um, businesses bars and restaurants and people will travel to them and it's sort of, um, you know, it, it can change the way that a, a space lives and breeds. And um, we're definitely seeing that in the city at the moment. Very different from uh, 2002, whenever I was working down there and, and probably around about the time you were as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, pretty much the same time. So, yeah, we maybe even bumped into each other without knowing it. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast is also brought to you by BDO, the trusted accountancy and advisory firm. As the finance experts in hospitality, BDO have the experience and the insight to provide solid foundations for your business's future growth. BDO really are the go-to team to help your hospitality business succeed. If you're in need of a dedicated transactional team bolstered with corporate finance, audit and tax services, Talk to BDO, who've got the right expertise, knowledge and experience to drive your restaurant or bars business throughout their full life cycle. As thought leaders across the sector, BDO offers commercial and technical updates specifically tailored to restaurants and bars, including their annual hospitality reports. BDO also have a well-established network in the industry that spans across finance directors, suppliers and advisors and they are always willing to use this to their clients and their contacts' advantage. Get in touch today at bdo.co.uk to chat about how they can help take your hospitality business to the top and please say that I sent you. And then just thinking about living venture stuff, I mean, we with him, you know, God bless him and stuff. I mean, you know, you're you're right, absolute poster boy, the whole thing. Um, you know, amazing culture. Um, you know, the, the the whole company seemed to be as well. 
What about um, where where was it in Leeds? The living room and uh, living room in Leeds. Where, where was that? Yeah. On Greek Street, which is a, another one of those sort of nice um, cyclical stories. Really, um, at the time, yeah. it was it was very much the, the kind of heartbeat of, of Leeds as a as a city centre. Um, yeah. There was a couple of local operators on on the same street. Beebies were there, who were a big sort of um, you know um, very well established Italian restaurant, proper kind of Goodfellas um, you know style. Again, queuing around the block. Um, we have Prohibition a bit further down the road, a handful of other um, uh, sort of older school operators. Henry's were there, I think. Um, oh, so, yeah, yeah, it was, it was um, you know, a, a bit like, you know, Deansgate was in Manchester at the time. Just one of those sort of central um, streets where everything had kind of gravitated around. You've got, you know, Lamborghinis bombing up and down on a Saturday night. And as I said, queues around the block. And it, it just felt, you know, like the, the absolute, absolute sort of pinnacle of, of late night um uh, activity and then very quickly it sort of fell away uh, i mean the living room was was sold um three or four years later as a brand and um uh, it's, i don't i'm not sure there are actually any living rooms left now stonegate ultimately um b- b- became the, the guardian of it and they yeah. put most of them into something else now um they've got this licorice brand um a couple of them have become um be at once i i think but um yeah we we, we i mean you, you you know i think uh, quite a few of the operators up in the um in, in the north don't you better work with the guys at arc and we, we were talking about last time and yeah they, they've obviously pitched up on greek street we, we've reopened um what was prohibition is is the second alchemist in in leeds um mm-hmm. lots of other operators in that area and again it's, it's come back pretty much full full circle and um if you're doing anything in, in sort of late bars or um or restaurants that's that's the area you'd want to be in just going through a pedestrianisation process now, which is quite nice. Um, I remember being part of a, a lobbying group um, back in 2004, pitching the council to do something similar. It's only taken 16 years for that to come to life, but um, that's that's looking quite nice. And it's going to create a really, really lovely um, part of the city, actually. So it'd be fully closed to vehicular traffic, um, fully fully kind of plastered out, um, properly landscaped. And I think it's going to be really, yeah, really important to us, you know, when we come back to life in the, in the summer and the sunshine, and that'll be a lovely street to be on. So yeah, I mean, it leads you know the the whole regeneration of it is is quite incredible. And every time you know I was going up to see the art guys, you know it was just like everything was in disarray, and the, you know the the train station was all road, you know all boarded up, and you know. But once it's just got its kind of unveiling, it's we think it's almost there now. And then Channel Four, yeah, I just say that you know we we've seen sort of first hand in in Manchester and, and specifically in, in Media City. You know, 10 yeah. years ago when the BBC moved up and um, one or two of the other studios and production companies followed, the life that breathes into the area is just incredible. And they've, Channel 4 have taken iconic um, building in Leeds, um, the old Majestic uh, nightclub, and um, it's just, you know, it's front and centre in the city. It, it's it's yeah. what it brings with it and, and the kind of production teams that, that follows. It brings a crew of people who are used to being out, you know, Monday through to Friday, spending corporate cards and doing entertainment and, and that has a, a huge impact in the way that a regional city operates and it was the biggest part of what happened in Manchester over the last 10 years was the media city growth and, and you have people you know living in hotels and service departments who had you know been been sort of repotted from London who were just used to being out you know not just yeah. the weekends but but right through the week and um it doesn't half help with your you know your revenue when you've got that sort of activity happening you're not pitching everything around a kind of Saturday night um, trade um, you can spread it out over seven days as, as obviously London operators has been doing for, for years and years um, and, and I, yeah really high hopes for what's going to happen in Leeds going forward and you can see that you know a lot of the um, the brands that are breaking out of London are, are sort of started in Manchester and are now starting to push on into to cities like Leeds um, Rose's Tide be, be sort of last 
good example of that. Um, Scott Collins was up there very quickly with Mead Liquor. And um, yeah, it's, you can see it's going to be a really, continue to be a really growing, vibrant city, hopefully for many years to come. No, I, I think it's going to be great. I mean, just interested on your point of, of you know, people being sucked into the area. Um, I watched a, a, a sort of Channel 4 dispatches type thing or something a while ago, and it was fascinating because it was it was talking about the regeneration and rebirth of um, King's Cross area. Yeah. And, uh, basically, it was it was all, you know, all seemed pretty logical when they explained it, but, you know, they were saying, right, first thing you do is you get some kind of, you know, creative industry there or creative people. So first thing they did was St. Martin's. So they, you know, brought St. Martin's in. So then all of a sudden you then get Google saying, right, we want to be there because of the talent that's around and the creativity and this and that. And then all of a sudden that just creates this, you know, sort of tractor beam pool. Great to see. It's it's a really, um, yeah, really, really vibrant part of the city. And you can see those principles being applied in, in, in lots of places and lots of regeneration is happening right around the country. One of the yeah. benefits of um, of doing the job I do generally is spend a lot of time in, in cities, new cities where, where we're not trading and we'd like to be in different areas and talking to the developers about some of those ideas. And it's just, it's, it's fascinating to, to see it, um, you know, come to life. And particularly when you're, you're joined up with, with um, some of that process and regeneration. I mean, we, we, we saw this in, in Media City firsthand, you know, being sold on this idea of a development that hadn't really kind of caught fire at this stage. And we, we knew the BBC were in and, and sort of operating, but couldn't really see the rest of it knitting together. Took a bit of a punt on it, you know, negotiated a bit around that fact that uh, we were taking a punt and um, ended up, you know, being part of that kind of collaboration and regeneration firsthand, really, and, and, and firmly, you know, establishing, establishing ourselves in the uh, in the community. And when you're taking out these long leases, that's that's really what you want to be doing, you know, putting some some groundwork in and being part of the conversation from the outset. And it's um it's a principle we've tried to apply to a lot of our site acquisition as, as we've gone along um, since then. You must be getting some good celebs in, though. In Media City, yeah, 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 yeah. We we've um, we do okay. I think we tried to keep um, tried to keep the same principles we've always done actually as an operator when when you have these people coming in and um, it, it just to to genuinely you know try and treat them as, as you would anyone else and, and just make sure that people aren't falling over themselves to get a photo or a. Or a you know, it's, um, yeah, like me. keep a bit of a balance. But it's, it's easier said than done. I think these days it's uh, you know the age of the, uh, the the selfie is a little bit more established, and it's generally done with with good humour. But um, yeah, t- try not to leverage it through through the, um, the the communications. I think that's that's probably a, a more sensible thing. Um, right. yeah, gone are the days when you want to have your, your kind of frame photos of uh, you know Cristiano Ronaldo on the wall, like um, one or two Manchester restaurants have probably still got. <laughs> so just going back then, just that in between bit, I suppose, living ventures and then into alchemist, etc. So two questions, I suppose. One is what did you learn from working within the living ventures sort of ecosystem and, and, and the machine there and culture? And the second thing is, you know, that transformation into the alchemist out on its own and, and you know, you sort of heading that up proper on its own sort of thing. How does that all work? Yeah, so um, Living Ventures, I mean, is a is was is still really um, you know a hugely kind of entrepreneurially spirited um, organisation. Really, it, it's quite. Um, I'm, I'm smiling really when I say this. I'm just making sure I'm, I'm being careful with with kind of how I present the picture. I mean, hugely successful um, you know business, obviously, and created some some really well known and, and much loved concepts, and um, I'm, you know very very proud to have been part of all that. 
um, it was actually quite uh, um, not unorganized. That, w- that wouldn't be fair to say, but there was a lot of different um, departments, not necessarily always putting in the same direction. It had the, mm. this operation he set up in two quite distinct camps, quite quite deliberately, and, and drove a lot of competition through that through the two ops directors that were um, responsible for each half of the business. Um, at the top of it all, obviously, sat Tim, you know, who is this incredible kind of force of nature and um, hugely kind of creative and, and, and conceptual guy. Uh, understood operations top to bottom, obviously, but it moved very much into the kind of creative sense of, of um, the, the role uh, and was really just, a, you know, the, the, the vehicle which everything else kind of travelled around. So he was the guy establishing, you know, uh, the, the, the concepts as they went along. And the model for, for a long time, really, was a bit of a conveyor belt. They would, they would sort of establish a concept, you know, get it to a kind of critical mass, two, three sites, um, get out and, and talk to um, the, the private equity community that they'd started to build up relationships with. Um, and uh, once you've reached that kind of critical point, sell out a majority chunk um, to said investor, retain a bit of a stake in the business, um, offer some sort of transitional service support and, and, and install a, um, a credible um, a managing director who had come up through the business. And um, that was a, a trail really that had been blazed by Chris at, at New World. I don't know whether you, you know, you've spoken to him around that, but that's, that's the, the journey that he went on first really and set the tone for one or two others to follow. Um, so uh, that, that was basically where I got to. I'd, I'd grown up, uh, as I said, in, in the living room brand uh, and I'd, I'd bounced around most of um, uh, the operating brands um, over the next sort of 10 years or so, Gusto and Blackhouse. I opened Australasia, which was the, the sort of flagship um, pet project of Tim's in, in Manchester in, in 2010 uh, as general manager and, and grew up into a, a sort of operations role through that, eventually taking on responsibility for the Manchester House, which was the partnership um, venture with uh, with Aidan Byrne, mm-hmm. uh, with Artisan, which was um, uh, a, a big sort of... Um, Semi street food, um, big big kind of breezy uh, industrial space that was doing sort of installations and, and food and drinks and music and yeah, it was was, was a really nice sort of conceptual idea. So you you, you learned a lot um, in an operations role at that time. Um, you, you did a little bit of everything. Um, uh, you learned the finance side of the business by by turning up once a month to an accounts meeting and basically arguing your case and presenting your numbers to, to the finance director. You did a bit of marketing through the, um, uh, the, the key marketing initiative um, monthly meeting that, that, that talked through the kind of principles of what you were doing with your individual um, concept. Um, you did a lot of HR. <laughs> it won't surprise you to learn. There was yeah, yeah. operations. And uh, it was just, yeah, you, you, you learnt um, quite entrepreneurially the, you know, the, the spirit of everything, really. And um, it was it was pretty full on, and and that, um, that that sort of conveyor belt principle worked really well. We we were um, the Alchemist brand was was part of that. Um, it was established in late two thousand and ten by, by Tim. They got it to um, to three sites um, by by sort of early two thousand and fifteen, and then the um, uh, the majority stake was was sold to a group called Palatine to take the brand on really and, and take it from a concept into something that could be built into you know a more sizable business. Um, not not a more credible business, but a more more credible brand, I think. And um, so that was where I got to. Um, it was it was March two thousand and fifteen. Um, I came in. We we had about um, twelve months of, of transition away from Living Ventures, and as we've gone on, we've we've scaled up the business as um, as you know as, as any other operator would do, adding in functions as as we go along and adding insights and, and growing the footprint. Hi, I'm Alex from Engage, and thanks for tuning in to the Supersonic Marketing Podcast. 
Each week, we'll be bringing you a great tip to supercharge your own digital marketing. And this week's comes from Kate, our senior marketing manager, who shares her insights on leveraging hashtags for community engagement. Hashtags have been around so long now, they can sometimes feel a bit old hat, but they're still very powerful for getting your content discovered and collating customer photos. While you might have bespoke hashtags for standalone campaigns, you should always have one consistent branded hashtag that you communicate to your fans for using when they post about you. This means that whenever a user searches for you online, they'll find your hashtag and all the user-generated content tagged with it, as well as your social profiles. This is great social proofing and increases new customer faith in your brand. As an added bonus, it's also a quick and easy way for you to find great user-generated content to repost on your own channels. Lush are a great example of a brand utilizing a hashtag to manage their community. Having shut down all their social channels in April 2019, their whole social media presence now exists solely on the Lush community hashtag. If you need help with your own digital marketing strategy, then head over to engageinteractive.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can see how we've helped some of the UK's most ambitious and successful hospitality brands with theirs. Cheers, and enjoy the rest of the episode. And what sort of prepared you to do that? I mean, was it not reasonably scary you know sort of going out on your own or were you able to still get support and help from I think a couple of things really I've been very fortunate um coming up in that that operations role doing the Australasia venue because it gave me a direct line into Tim which wouldn't necessarily have had working in one of the more established brands um it was a good and a bad thing uh, believe me, um, because yeah, yeah. As, as positive as that was, um, a lot of times it was, it was also quite vocal with others when we'd misinterpreted, um, you know, certain sort of intentions and instructions. But but yeah, a lot of kind of direct learning there was was great. Um, I mean, the, the the beauty of that that model as it was at the time, obviously, it's um, you know, understandably really now since since its demise has has, has kind of slowed, and, and and Jeremy and the other guys are, are, are sort of. Um, easing away from the development of concepts now and just concentrating on the job in hand um but but at the time yeah as i said we had a good sort of 12 months of, of transition so i had a, a bit of a safety net behind me um i think you know by, by that stage i was was pretty confident i had set up and, and established some um some, some pretty good operations um had, had the basic principles down and um also had uh, a, a good you know uh, decent operating team that have, that have come with uh, the Alchemist in its own right. So the, the, the kind of day-to-day stuff has been taken care of by, by Mark, who's, um, who's uh, since become our ops director, very talented guy, been with the, the Alchemist concept since day one, so knew it inside out. And that gave me time to kind of plug into the um, to, to the wider hospitality community. And I think that was probably the, the, the biggest learning for me was just getting that exposure to the wider world. Uh, I think as, as an operating manager, you, you are, you know, pretty much 24-7. There wasn't a whole lot of time to come up for air and, and see what everyone else was doing. Almost sort of stuck in this this kind of bubble of, of, of we did things a certain way and that was the only way and that was that was the right thing. But actually getting to a few, you know, conferences, stuff that the guys at William Reed have organised, Propel or Peter, whoever it might be, you know, and talking to other people out there, you know, listening to people like Will Beckett at Hawksmoor, you know, explaining what their culture is about and how he managed it. You, you kind of wake up very quickly to the fact that, Actually, everyone was doing something pretty remarkable in terms of, you know, the development of their people and the, the uh, evolution of their brand. And, and actually, we're probably, you know, in danger of falling behind that curve. So um, the focus was really on, on growing this brand and making it a little bit more purposeful and a bit more um, intentional. So it was, it was good. So it, it was scary, definitely. And um, that, that responsibility uh, kind of sticks in my mind quite well. I can remember vividly going into... Um, Tim's office one day and, and saying, "Look, I've you know I've, I've had this idea at, at the time. Living Ventures was a 
very sort of autocratic business. Everything had to kind of go through a sign-off process. I said, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the, the venues at the minute and uh, see, we set up the, the restaurant tables every morning with white napkins and, um, and wine glasses. And it's all very, you know, it, it looks a bit like a, a gusto or a black house, I suppose. I said, by the time we actually get, you know, a guest sat down, the first thing we do is take the wine glass back off the table and give them a cocktail menu because that's what they're there for. You know, I, I think we just have a little think about how we sort of go about setting up the, um, the space. Yeah, a bit nervous kind of presenting this idea. And he was like, yeah. I mean, what, what the fuck do you think a managing director is supposed to do? This is what we're paying you to do. Just get out there and do it. Get out of my office. Oh, yeah. So at that stage, it was like, right, oh, okay, yeah, I have actually got a bit of freedom to, to crack on here. So let's let's pick that up and, and run with it. And, and it was really good. And, and it sort of, um, uh, that, that came at a time when I had a lot of these conferences, hearing a lot of insight and, um, and, and input from people who have been there and done it. I can remember very clearly um, listening to, to Karen Jones. Someone she she often talks about this idea of getting your, you know, what what does your business do? You need to get it down into a single sentence. If you can't do that, you know, you've got no hope of translating it to your teams or to your to your customers. You know, get it get it focused. What is it? Obviously, you're a restaurant or or a bar. You know, that's a given. What makes you different? So we started um, with the, the very small team that had at that stage, just you know, kind of blue skying a few ideas around that. We took that on, you know, did, did the full-on kind of Shoreditch thing, sat in Soho Works with a brand facilitator, you know, big kind of brown parcel paper on the wall, spitting out ideas, you know, the, the sort of, um, you'll be familiar with this stuff, if, if the alchemist was a car, what kind of a car would it be? <laughs> and um, stuff that just, that, you know, it sounds a bit daft, some of it now looking back, but it, but it helped to start thinking about the, the brand properly, you know, in, in a kind of um, an abstract sense, not not just the you know the fundamentals of drinks and a glass and food and a plate. You know, what what message are we actually trying to tell our people? You know, those who are working for us and, and those that are coming through the doors. And it was good. And in, in the end, we, you know, we'd spent a good chunk of time and, and money with these sorts of people and had a, a fairly good set of guiding principles. And in the end, um, Jenny, our, our, our now brand director, was saying, you know, one of the things we're, we're missing here is, is sort of what does a guest really think about the business and um we have this treasure trove of information through TripAdvisor and facebook reviews and your tendency you know each week is to look at that stuff and pick out the negatives and oh, wait times at the bar or you know couldn't get something booked online that we needed to and you, you pick out the, the negatives and obviously there's this whole whole raft of, of people who have just had a great time and happy to leave you a nice review and um we, we delighted on this this one guy's um a bit of feedback which basically said you know if, if you want a description of what this place is like it's it's like theatre in a glass thought you know what that's pretty cool actually that's 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 pretty much what we're doing without really realizing it so we developed that out and uh, rather than a single sentence we got down to these two two kind of keywords really and it's some um, theatre served so we just we started stamping that around the place really you know um, having it as a tagline on, on internal communications um, got, got a bit of press coverage as we were putting um, releases out about new sites and it just became a, a bit of a, a, a principle really um, we were opening a site up in um, Birmingham, I think, I think at the time that, that all this was happening, and we, we kind of developed it out um, for, for a way of onboarding the, the people that we were bringing in, about 40 or 50 people sort of starting work that morning. And we, we put this kind of idea of theatre served across, you know, we've done the set design, we've built the stage, you can see the bar, you can see the venue around you. We've written you a script, and your script is, you know, the specification for how to make an espresso martini or a... Um, smoky old fashioned and we want you to you know to, to learn these lines learn this script we're going to rehearse with you we're going to take you through this this kind of training so you're going to be polished and drilled and then what we're looking for guys is for you to put on a performance and, and that's what we want you know and um and we've basically kept those those kind of four things going so we've got this idea that every every day you know every 
every guest that comes through the door, every shift, every day, every week, every month, you know, you're putting that performance on. If you can deliver a good experience, you know, it's not it's not performative in, in, the, in the literal sense, but there's a bit of showmanship that goes with it. The way that you, you know, you talk, you guess through the drink or put the final flourish at the table or have that interaction with your, you know, your smoking dessert, whatever it might be, that it, it becomes memorable. It becomes something a little bit more than just drinking a glass or food on a plate. You know, it, it helps you to keep everything knitted together. And, and that, that then, you know, becomes self-fulfilling, really. It, it ends up pervading your, your communications, the way that you talk to people through social media, um, you know, your, your, your e-flyers and your interaction with guests um, in, in all kinds of format, advertising. Um, it just means that you've got a kind of joined up approach to your, to your brand, um, Leicester business. And um, it's, just, it's just been really useful as, as, a, as a kind of principle to, to, to sit at the back of what we do. Well, just thinking, you are so lucky we are not in the same room because I'd be in danger of kissing you. And <laughs> you know, it's just music to my ears, and not because you know it's I'm a brand guy sticking up for brand guys or whatever brand people. It's just um, this is how it's done, right? And the frustration that I go through with the meetings that I go to, with, you know, all different sorts of people, when they say we we wish we were as good as the Alchemist or you know, why are we not as good as that? Or, God, they're doing really well and why, you know, just all that. And you go, because you've not went through the process, you know? And then the other thing is people go through the process and it sort of goes into a drawer somewhere. And the important thing, and you said it many times through what you were saying there, was developing it out, you know, nailing your brand in two words is the start of the whole thing. Yeah. And then it's like, True, and then what you'll find is through doing the brand process, if the brand DNA is a little bit shaky, um, and you know you're you're groping for for USPs and you're not sure of values, and do you know what? The, the, the probably isn't a good concept in the first place. So, um, you know the fact that you had solid foundations to work from, and then built on that, and honestly, if if you spoke to anyone that knows the alchemist or has heard of it, or, I mean, that is pretty much what they'll say. Mm. You know, it's, it's you know, dry ice and flamboyancy and, and flair and, you know, and all this theatre at the bar. And it, it's an experience and just 0.1% of brands in the world have got that nailed and actually deliver on it, you know. So I don't mean to say at all that you're lucky, you're, you know, but it's at all because you've worked hard to get it there, but it's just, getting that message across to other people that's do the work. And look, I bet you didn't spend, you know, 200 quid, you know, getting this nailed. No. You know, and it's it's like, you know, Robert Bean that taught me uh, the brand process, you know, he did a lot of stuff with like BT, it's good to talk and Ultimate Drive Machine BMW and Power of Dreams Honda and all this. And yeah. what he talks about in his book, um, which is really worth getting, you know, it's called Winning in Your Own Way. It's a really easy read, but... He talks about the sex pistols, you know, God save the queen, I mean it, man. You know, and it's, do you mean it, man? And just so many people do it as a tick box exercise that's on a list and they don't follow it through. So this is just great to hear that, you know, you've done the hard yards, you've done the thinking, and now you're in a Disney space rather than being in a, you know, bar space that could get dated quite quickly if you just want to cocktails, you know. That we, we know that the, the consumer out there at the moment is smart and they, they want that authenticity, um, you, you know, whether it's kind of 
polished up and, and, and delivered in a particular way, or whether it's out and out authenticity, it's um, it, it is important, and I think that consistency of narrative is is really key, certainly in terms of the way you communicate. You know, if you if you have a a, a sort of guiding principle then you, you make better decisions on the back of that. It actually gets easier as, as you go on. If you've got something that you need to kind of peg back to, it, it will help you make decisions for the right reasons. I think a good example of that would be the um, the app that we put together last year. A lot of people out there, got to have an app, got to have an app, got to be on people's phones. And if you just create something that is, I don't know, if effectively just a, a, a loyalty app or a, you know, a boots card in electronic form, whatever it might be, then it, it doesn't it doesn't stand out any differently to, to anything that anyone else is doing. Um and the way we approached it, we you know we looked at it, and we, we we had a you know the, the template of a you know fairly sort of run of the mill um, loyalty app, and in the end we just decided that the the juice wasn't going to be worth the squeeze. You know, a lot of money to develop these things, it just didn't feel different enough. It didn't didn't feel like it had that that sense of theatre or purpose about it. So we came back around to it about six months later, and we got an approach through one of our um, uh, spirit, um, one of the, the spirit brand owners, um, who who sort of had this idea for a project that they thought they could work with ours, and. Um, it was it was basically this idea of um, augmented reality cocktails. So you, you start with a you know a fairly interesting looking cocktail, but it basically works from a um, a, a trigger map. Um, it's a, it's a, um, uh, an overlay that you you, you sit this kind of um, filter from your phone over. Um, it sits on the map. Um, the glass goes on it, and that then triggers a load of animation around um, around the drink. So you've got something that is immediately um, shareable, immediately a little bit different and, and eye catching. And it, it wasn't brand new. Um, Jason Atherton had done it at City Social um, in, in a fairly sort of tight run um, offer over um, the, the previous summer. We just like the idea of developing the, um, the the notion of that and, and putting it into our brand context. So we work with our um, designers who do a lot of our um, uh, collateral menu design and, and some venue design. We created specific drinks for it um, in line with, with the brand owners. Um, and we put a bit of storytelling. So it was our, it was completely owned, top to bottom, our own animation, um, our, our own app. It sat, um, it's called The Conjurer. So it sits as a, as a kind of purposeful, you have to download it to make the drinks work. So we started with something that was, you know, out and out theatre. Um, um, and we've now got a platform that allows us in the fullness of time to, to go back and, and, and backload in. So if we want to add loyalty into it, we can do it. If we want to, you know, do a little bit more sort of um, guest communication through it, we, we can do. But but it started with something that was more interesting than just, you know, download our app today, you know, a Nectar card by the other name. It's a really good point because, you know, again, I'm <laughs> sitting in these meetings, it's like, as you said, we need an app, we need an app, we need an app. But it's like, look, unless this is going to be something as fun and entertaining as maybe, um, you know, having your, your be at one happy hour thing or, or something useful or as as integral to your day that um, is like Spotify or Uber or, you know, then it's like, why why would you bother, you know? So uh, you see that all the time and loyalty means points and it's just, it's not enough, yeah. you know? Um, so it is kind of crazy that people are spending 20s and 30s grands on these things. And for, for little return, you yeah. know, it really doesn't work. Yeah. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The Supersonic Marketing Podcast is also brought to you by Atenzi, the world's leading gamified simulation training provider. Even before the COVID-19 crisis, a LinkedIn study found that more than half of learning and development professionals were looking at remote learning solutions. Given hospitality's new reality, how do you plan to train your staff to accelerate your business out of these tough times? 
With Atenzi's gamified simulation training, you can accurately recreate the situations and environments that your people will face day in, day out to engage and rapidly develop their abilities. Forget static e-learning, dusty training manuals and passive videos and embrace training's new era with Atenzi. Find more information and get started today at atenzi.com forward slash restaurants. Just talking about team and, and you know, you, you touched on that, but I know you've got like a currency of, of kindness program. Yeah. Um, and it was just, yeah, to find out a bit more about that because again, you're doing it, you've got the brand right, but you're delivering the brand promise, you know, through internal means and external means. So tell us a wee bit more about that. Yeah, I think one of the things, you know, and this is definitely something that was established early on was um, looking after the people. You know, ultimately this this is a people business. I think recent events have brought that into hugely sort of sharp focus for, you know, the, the wider country, just understanding how many people are involved in, in hospitality, um, I think Brandon um, at Torte had the count of 4.4 million people are employed, you know, across the sector. I mean, it's an incredible number, isn't it? And, um, you know, it's, it's incredibly competitive. And um, we, we have some some excellent sort of retention numbers in the business and, and something we work very hard on because it's it's not easy to do what we do. I talked about, you know, the, the kind of rehearsal times earlier on, and the, the level of, of training and, and development that goes into our people is um is easily the, the, the biggest um, cash outlay we have in the business rightly so um because you know the, the better they are um, the, the the better performance if you like that they're giving and you know <laughs> the, the better the tills are ringing uh, frankly um because everything is being done subconsciously and at pace and um and, and, and positively so um yeah people obviously sit very very hard of what we do and i mean every operator you've spoken to and how however many of these that you you've done will, will say exactly the same thing obviously so so what do you do to you know to, to kind of stand out a little bit differently from the crowd in, in that regard you've got to communicate with you know potential employees in the same way you communicate with potential guests so um we, we do this uh, this annual survey um where we, we, we go out right the way across, you know, 1,200 people in the business at the moment. Um, they're all anonymously surveyed, and it's, it's fairly comprehensive. It's, you know, third-party provided. It's, it's, it's very sort of um, complex and uh, data-driven piece of work. And um, we, we sit down and review that annually, obviously, and, um, and look to act on areas that, that aren't, you know, being hit. And one of the, um, uh, the feedbacks we got um, three years ago, four years ago, I think, from doing this was that um, – People were, were, were happy with the work environment that they that they had and, and the training and development they were getting, but it's a, a generation of people coming through that, that have a, a bit more uh, focus on on doing good in the in the world, and um, we've been pushed along a little bit with the idea of what we could do positively for the um, the communities around us. How, how could we do a little bit more? Take our corporate social responsibility a little bit further. Um, could, could we do anything with our networks to to open up platforms for people to go out and, and do good um, in, in line with work? So we created this um, this program, currency of kindness. It got termed, so it had a you know a reference point back, and um, effectively it's it's a paid volunteer process. So we accrue through the um, uh, the site PLs a, a chunk of time each month for people to go out and um, uh, and connect in with a nominated charity. It's it's tightly controlled, so the the site um, have to propose their um, charity, community, green initiative, whatever it might be, um, at the start of the year. And then everyone commits to, to doing the hours through that program. So it's not hair and scare them and, and, and hard to follow. And uh, it, it's it's been picked up and, and been a very positive part of what we do uh, as we open new sites around the country. And generally, you, you line up with um, whoever it might be. And we've got, you know, more sort of um, 
expected soup kitchen type organizations right through to um you know tree planting or urban farms and it just means that the the, the, the local teams um have have full control of it it's generally um funneled through an, an hourly paid member of staff a champion of that that program um we work very closely with the initiative provider so they'll come in and do you know talks three or four times a year that they just sort of update on on impact that we're having and um it's nice it's it's it, it, what's good about it is it's not completely mandated um you know there are there are certain venues where we've never really got it to stick because people are either too busy or they're, they're already um you know involved in their own sort of um unique projects but the the resource is there for anyone who wants to use it you get the right buy-in from the sites and they're they're working specifically with a group that is local to them and i think the fact that it's 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 immediately sort of tied to local communities um has, has been very positive for our um our local site teams so we got you know some, some good examples of that would be um in, in media city again they work very closely with the um, bridgewater canal trust and it's basically a, a, a renovation um a scheme that runs around salford um some of it is, is clearing up waterways some of it is, is, is tree planting we've got an alchemist garden um, about half a mile from where the venue is that, that the guys have kind of planted top to bottom and it's um it's quite nicely sort of uh in bloom at the moment and um you know that that then is shared through the, the sort of um internal apps and uh, it's just it's just you know some some well-being we've got a um a girl down in london who works out of the um the bevis mark site who uh, uh is working for the the, the soup kitchen um, down there and she basically turns up uh, an hour early for each of those shifts and, and sets the um the space up as a proper restaurant environment so it's you know it's full kind of tablecloths and uh, glasses and cutlery and um, you know they, they, they're doing the, the soup kitchen fair but doing it in restaurant fashion so they, they become quite organic and um, you know they take on a bit of a life of their own we just we just sort of introduce the scheme and it, it then is operated by the people at the local site level so it's lovely nice and then you were really um, quick on the draw for uh, you know a couple of initiatives you know war and straws and pound on the bill and, and all that stuff so you know how did you manage to implement that so quickly and you know what what were the, the benefits of doing that i think the the, the war and the straw stuff i mean it you know it, it was two maybe three years ago now it's everywhere obviously and rightly um it, it got moved along very quickly by the blue planet um episode and the you know the poor old turtles uh, swimming around and people you know woke up to that fact very quickly i think you'd be hard pressed to go into any any sort of um business now and, and find yourself a plastic straw i think um for us really it, it came through um we'd we'd had this um uh, sort of greenkeepers program running alongside where we'd, we'd asked um a, a team member to, to basically be a champion of um, any kind of green ideas and i mean this was as basic as sort of starting off with switching off lights in the office and you know um turning off taps that were left running in bathrooms just somebody to, to, to kind of own that piece again time back to the fact that this generation z you know the 19 20 year olds we've got working for us really want to save the world at the moment and, and do some some good about the place and um uh, through that forum they, they basically have a, a kind of monthly um conference um where they they can feedback ideas and and this idea just come out of that basically that um they they did seen the amount of plastic that was being used at the time it's back in 2017 i, I want to say we, we we got it going and um it was just yeah a bit of an eye-opener and again at that stage we were at a, a time in our journey where we could I don't know. I wouldn't say that it would be harder to do now, but we were watching probably the pennies a little bit less at that stage. We can make good positive decisions without worrying about the implication of what that meant across 20 sites and what the cost of replacing plastic for a seashell composite might mean, you know, a penny on every straw obviously adds up to quite a lot of cash when you start thinking about it in big macro terms. 
we were still very um, you know independent minded at that stage and, and could see the, the upside of doing that positively um, versus just you know the, the pounds and pence decision that sometimes ends up informing bigger businesses so pleased with that and I think again you know a lot of it you know your, your out and out brand guy if you just put a kind of a, a strap line to it it helps people understand it so we communicated it heavily you know we sent a bit of internal it was a, it was a paper document that went out at the time we, had, we weren't quite on with the um the internal app that we've got now to get these messages across or the digital screens that we have back of house that, that sort of talk through some of the decision making that we're doing so we sent out this, this poster, a little bit of narrative around it, and, and people got on with it. And, it. and again, it's just, it becomes something for them to talk to guests about. We put a little bit of information in, in the back of the menus. The problem we've got is that the um, the seashell composite straws that we use look like plastic straws. So we have to be um, a, a little bit kind of proactive about the way that we communicate that. So that's, that's the reason it's sort of still there and, and, and kind of um, being put across rather than sort of out and out kind of. I won't say virtue signaling, but I think in the early days of, of kind of brand establishment, it felt important to be industry leading on these sorts of things. And I think now I, I worry a lot less about that. Um, I think it's far more important that your your team that, that you're leading um, believes in what you're doing. It doesn't really matter what, what people outside of that circle think. It's not about kind of, you know, doing good for doing good sake. It's because we, we can see the positivity for it for our, for our own teams and for our own retention, uh, ultimately. Um, so that was good. And then, the pound and the bill. I mean, this was a, a kind of initiative that was that was running, you know, years ago. Uh, Street Smart were, were very early on with it. I don't know if you remember them. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I was the, the big kind of uh, advocate of it, and um, we, we were running it through um, through the living room. I think it must have been at the time. Maybe it was all by one. Uh, and, and basically, uh, it was it was you know great initiative, but but rightly. Um, pointed out by a few people that it was a bit faceless and, and that the money was going uh, at the time, you know, nobly and, and, and rightly to um, people that were being affected in, in London. And it felt quite hard to, to land that message in Leeds. So we've um, more recently taken that on. Um, we, we generally work with the, um, the, the food and aid partners that we have, which is our uh, donate a meal scheme through uh, buying a meal um, in the restaurant uh, that, that a lot of businesses do. Um, again, it works with, with sort of local um uh, centres, food banks, and um, uh, and charities in, in need in local cities, and what tends to happen, we do it um, uh, around uh, that December January period when the restaurants are very busy with um, uh, with Christmas bookings, and then with the January sale, so at a time when people are feeling a little bit more festive and a bit generous, and we we just got the guys to to come out from those um, local charities to to come and explain what they do, and then the the teams are equipped with that answer, and if if you know a, a guest is querying why they're they're paying an additional pound, then there's a there's a proper narrative that the, the team member can give rather than just saying, oh, I'm doing it because, you know, the office told me to do it. So um, I think it's, it's just empowering people. And um, a, a lot of what we do in terms of decision making now in the business comes from what we're being told by the, the teams. So we try and take on as much knowledge as we can from, from the people that are actually listening to, um, you know, the guys coming through the doors. It makes sense. I mean, I think that that's a thing an awful lot of people forget, you know, they do, say our head office is a support office but they still run it like you know ivory towers and they know better and they don't check in with their teams enough to to see what's really going on out there and, and you know, it really should be the, the flipped scenario um i think that's it one know. of the, the areas we, we try to do that um more recently and is um the, the way that we go about sort of developing and, and delivering uh, drinks you know obviously that's the, the the fundamental thing that we do that is our our, our absolute theater served and for a long time, you know, we, we had that fairly kind of autocratic approach that, you know, myself and the ops director would sit there, the teams would present drinks to us and we, you know, we, we thumbs up or thumbs down it, um, gladiator style. And it, it, it just, it, 
increasingly has felt very wrong to be making those decisions. You know, I'm, I'm not really representative of the, the main user in, in, in the venue. So why on earth am I, am I the person green lighting or not the, you know, the drinks that end up there? Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well informed on, on you know, trends and, and, and what's going on. But we've got this whole network of people that sit around the business, this, this kind of not just people internally, but the, the, the people that we collaborate with on a daily basis, you know, the brand owners and the, the, the spirit suppliers who have got reams and reams of customer insight and, you know, trend analysis and big kind of global networks. So we've, we've started inviting those guys along, you know, the, the account managers that we work with on a, a week-to-week basis are coming to the um, to the mix-offs now and providing insight that is far greater than, you know, something we can just do internally. And we, you know, we've got a couple of people from the sites involved in that as well. It's a much more, it's a much bigger room and you get you get much more um, feedback. So I think, um, you know, it goes back to your point you were making early on and just about not being afraid to change systems and, and approaches as, as the business grows and, and as you, you need to stay more and more relevant to the, um, you know, to the consumer. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And just on that relevancy point, um, what about Instagram? You know, you're very, very intrinsically linked with it. Um, you know, do you think that's going to change? Do you think it's going to be more going in the TikTok way? You're well designed for that. You know, are you look into that future thinking about that more than usual or what's going on there yeah i, I think instagram you know rightly really has, has been a, a really useful tool for us um in, in terms of, of spreading that message i mean it, it does so much of your marketing for you really and i, th- I think we, we get a lot of kind of cross city users um through the um you know the network of sites that we've got now and particularly amongst, I suppose, that sort of student community. It, it, it's an aspirational enough place for people to be going on, on dates or out for birthdays. And, you know, someone who lives in Sheffield but goes to uni and Leeds is, is getting sight of it. And then you see these sort of thing pick up in, in the comments on the Instagram threads when you come into Sheffield, when you come into Cardiff. And it just sort of helps you plot your way around uh, around the country. So it's a great tool. And, you know, again, you, you don't need me to tell you that the kind of value of something that's free to use effectively um, as, as long as you're using it the right way. Um, I, I think it's definitely not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, I, I think particularly in recent times, recent weeks, the, the, the age of the influencer might be on the wane a little bit. I mean, I think the, the Instagram user is getting wise to, um, you know, the paid for stuff. Um, they, they, they want the authenticity, but they, they definitely still want the content. I think it, it's something we're pushing along with um, already at the moment. I, I think we've, we're probably not making that much different noise to anyone else at the moment and that that sort of rankles a little bit at the minute um we, we were right out in front of it i felt as a trend you know five or six years ago and i think we've, we've probably allowed people to catch up a little bit so whether it's it's just sharpening up that that format a bit or whether we are looking in, in fact at other kind of platforms you mentioned tiktok there i mean it's brilliant isn't it um just just again it, we, we need to find a way of making it resonate properly with with the brand and not just something that we do for, for doing its sake. It, it has to be credible and it has to match up to, um, you know, some of those principles that we were talking about earlier on. We, we have a bit of a paradox in the business where a lot, a lot of the drinks, obviously, are rightly kind of designed for it because they're, they're quite interactive and, you know, they've got stages of, of, of development, you know, as, as you drink them. Some of them change colour or taste or whatever it might be and that works really well on video. But the venues are, are actually and necessarily quite dark. So in terms of taking photographs uh, and actually creating that that user-generated content, we're not brilliantly placed for that at the minute. So one of the things we're working, trying to work with the designers on for the various venues that are coming up at the moment is how we can incorporate a bit more of that, you know, carving out specific spaces that are lit properly or maybe um, a little bit more interactive as spaces in their own right. So we're starting to drip a bit of technology into venue design now 
Um, it's nothing too too groundbreaking. We've, we've got some uh, some of the murals that are fairly synonymous with the venues as we go around the country are now being animated through projectors. So you've got you know storytelling happening on the walls around you, which is is great. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm really um, trying to, to get my head around and, and get my um, CFO to buy into at the minute as well is um, putting a little bit more into um, uh, working technology in the venues as well. I had a, a good chat with Chris Miller at White Rabbit Fund. Um, uh, a couple of months mm. ago, who who was talking about this um, uh, robot that he's he's building for um, uh, Island Poke. Um, he's got a pokey making robot coming into one of his venues, which just sounds amazing. And I've got to believe that there is a, a cocktail making version of that robot and, and something like that that could you know genuinely sort of appear in, in video content would be really kind of attention grabbing. Um, it's, it's very exciting. It's just trying to make the um, the numbers work for it. And and again, making it fit with, uh, you know, the rest of the venue design, it can't be too clunky or at, at odds with, you know, the, the overall aesthetic. Well, in fact, Chris is coming on the next couple of weeks and um, we, uh, he has been going to Japan a lot lately. So yeah, yeah maybe, <laughs> maybe something to do with that. Um, so yeah, well, not, not at the moment, obviously, but uh, before. So, yeah, that's really cool. So I'm thinking I better let you go. But there was a couple of things I was going to ask just to sort of round up. So there's a little fun thing that we do, um, which is called Mark Out of Ten. And it's a couple of quick fire questions. Best city to eat in for you? Um, I, I think it's still London. I mean, I, I, I'm fairly sure that's the answer that everyone gives, but it, it just has. Um, Not everyone. <laughs> it, it has something so, um, certainly in my experience, you know, Travelled a bit and, and, and eaten in a lot of you know uh, great cities and, and, and great restaurants, but I think London on, on balance is just the range of stuff you can get, isn't it? You know, from from um, ultra ultra fine dining to, to proper experience to you know that the more kind of um, authentic and really considered and, and, and compact, you know, the likes of Brat and um, Smoking Goat and those kind of things that are just just yeah, very very vibrant. Yeah, there's there's just an, an energy about it, isn't there? That that you, you don't really find anywhere else. You know, with with all love to New York and Paris and Berlin and all these other great spaces, I just think London is 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 right up there with the best. And what about your best restaurant then? What's your absolute favourite? I, I think again, you know, we obviously live in this fairly rarefied world where we get to eat a lot of amazing places and, and try a lot of things, you know, b- b- before other people are able to. For, for me, um, a, a great restaurant is is always about experience probably more um than than the food on the plate um and one of my most memorable certainly which is probably the, the best way to look at it was um uh, a venue called scorpios in mykonos a couple of summers ago um mm-hmm. i wouldn't say you know totally groundbreaking in terms of the food that they were doing but it's basically it's a beachside environment i mean i was on holiday so obviously in a, in a very kind of relaxed mindset anyway um it, it's very um unconventional there's there's a lot of um you know kind of moving music and, and theater going on you, you kind of sat alongside a beach where there's a big bonfire blazing and a dj playing and just in terms of something truly transportative and, and hard to recreate you know there's there's no way you could be you know putting one of them up in, in manchester city center you just haven't got the um you haven't got the climate for it but um that that in terms of a, of a memory uh, and, and an experience is, is probably the best i've had in in a, a good few years I've definitely heard of that. I don't know if it's been like maybe in a, a documentary or um, you know, one of these uh, sort of food things on Netflix or something. But I've definitely heard of it. It's very heard of it. worth a visit if you get the opportunity. Yeah, looks looks amazing. And then I'm um, just sort of looking at it now. It looks looks stunning. And then what about best dish? You know, what do you what do you crave dish wise? 
best dish. I mean, this is going to be a, a, a kind of a, a fairly standard answer for everyone, but I, I think the, the guys at Dishoom obviously are, are brilliant at what they do, and I, I think that that sort of um, the, the homemade um, black dal dish on, on their menu is just it, every time we go, it's it's ordered, and, and that probably is as <laughs> good a um, accreditation of that as, as anything else. So yeah, I think I think that's the um, the one hard hard to create at home as well. I think that's important, isn't it? When you when you're eating out, you want to make sure that you're um, yeah you're, you're having something that is, is is very difficult to do in your own kitchen. Although I'm sure a lot of people are trying at the moment. I did see that, um, you know, in some research from from a couple areas over the years. And it was that thought, which was just like, you know, give me something that I can't do at home. And, and you know, that's a lot of the time I've got a client down here in Brighton uh, who are just the best. I mean, just amazing, called Riddle and Fins. And it's a, a you know, modern British sort of seafood restaurant. And, you know, it is that like cooking fish at home. You know, you've either got the, oh, it's a bit difficult, oh, it's a bit fiddly, oh, it's a bit stinky. Um, you know, and doing that well and just going to a, a restaurant and having that, you know, whether it's the, the fruit de mer platter or, you know, the oysters or, you know, it's stuff that you know, I wouldn't yeah. generally do at home. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. hard to get as well, you know. It's, it needs to feel special, doesn't it, I think. And, um, yeah, yeah that's, that's the hallmark of any good dish. Definitely. And what about booze? What about your best drink if you're if you're a drinker go to drink um, I, I like a margarita really i think it has a it has a lot of pep to it that that sourness really really um good for me it's a good pick me up isn't it good good one to sort of um get going if you you know you've had a couple of beers after work and, and you need that bit of pep to sort of take you into the evening that that comes in at a great time at seven o'clock and um yeah sharpness and uh, and the saltiness of that fantastic well, you do sort of feel it coursing through your veins slightly yeah. <laughs> in a yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. sort of way. Um, so, yeah, it, it, uh, that's always a good supercharger if, if, if you're wanting it. So, yeah, that, that's a good one. So the last thing I was going to say was just the future. So future for you, future for Alchemist. What's um, What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've been in a fairly um, uh, sort of organic, sensible growth journey um for the last five years um you know as i said three three and a half um venues when i started out we're at, we're at 20 today so it's been sensible um rate but it's it's pretty sort of sizable business now um obviously that that um organic growth will be on pause i would think for a good 12 months now regardless really of, of when we bounce out of this kind of lockdown process you know having having two three months of, of sort of you know, no trade um, is, uh, is is manageable. You know, we're we're in a, a safe holding pattern, but we'll have a, a definite effect on our ability to to kind of go out and open sites at the rate that we have been doing. Um, that said, I, I, you know, I've still got a mandate to grow the business. I've still got an appetite to, to grow the business, and um, growth can come in lots of different ways. We've, we've been doing um, a lot of work on um, uh, quite a deep lying uh, overseas project. Uh, thinking about how we pick the alchemist up and and um, move it forward through a sort of franchise or, or joint venture arrangement, um, was looking forward to putting some meat on the bones of that at the back end of summer. I think that that will be be kicked a little bit further down the road, but it's something that I would still like to do. All, all things being equal, um, very much alive and, and open to the idea of um, uh, some some M and A activity. Um, so I think there'll be a fair amount of that uh, available to us um, at the back end of this year, early twenty twenty one. So. Um, yeah, I, I think we're, we're we're quite ready at the moment to just concentrate very much on our on our main thing and our, our main purpose and just safeguard the you know the 
um, the futures of the, the 20 venues that we're, we're very proud of at the moment. And there'll be a lot of um, focus on delivering the, the kind of excellence and um, and the standards we've been known for, um, for for 12 months. But we'll be keeping an eye on what we can do to, you know, to um, kickstart the, the, the growth of the business um, at the back end of this year. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping for um, a, a reasonably sort of fast return to, um, you know, to, to normal trading. Um, I think we've got something fairly sort of accessible and, and, and price position that, isn't going to be too scary for people to contemplate. We've got good geographical spread. I think once people are greenlit to go back out into bars and restaurants, we'll, we'll be okay. Um, and I want to make sure that we've got things to be working towards as a, as a wider group of people um, for, for many years to come. So I feel cautiously optimistic at the moment, but we're, we're set to weather the storm that we've got at the moment. And then, um, yeah, it's just looking at what that, that new world looks like um, on the other side. Great. Well, listen, thanks so much for spending the time today. It's been superb to catch up with you. And I know we've talked virtually and bumped in each other and, and all the rest of it. But, yeah, I'm really looking forward to catching up with you on the other side. And, you know, I think you've got an amazing business, amazing culture. And for you to know as well, outsiders looking in and competitors are all, you know, very green um, about what you've achieved. And, and I wouldn't say that lightly. So, um, you know, that's great stuff for you. And, you've done the right thing all the way along. So it's just, it's really heartening to see, you know, someone doing it properly and the hard work paying off. So well done. And um, see you soon. Yeah, great stuff. Thank you. So there you have it. What a masterclass on how to run your brand well from Simon Potts of The Alchemist. Thanks so much to Simon for spending the time to be on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks to you for listening. Please do share with one friend or colleague and please do like, subscribe, share, rate and review if you can. Thanks to our headline sponsors Engage. Visit engageinteractive.co.uk for all your digital and social media needs. Thanks also to our premium partner BDO. Visit bdo.co.uk for all of your business financial questions and queries. Thanks to Gaz and Gabby for putting the podcast together as usual. It really, really is appreciated. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off. Bless you. Thanks for listening. I hope that you got as much from this episode as I did. And I really hope that this has given you enough value and inspiration to make your brand boom. Boom.